Thank you for joining us. This is episode 18 of Amateur 3D Podcast, a podcast by amateur printers for amateur printers, where we share our thoughts and experience. Our panelists this week are myself, Franklin Christensen, and my friends, Andy Cottom, Kevin Buckner, and Chris Weber. And it's a weird, but I almost said angular 3D podcast, and this is not an <laughs> angular podcast. <laughs> At least we try to keep it straight. Well, Bengals the right to heaven. Well, and, and and I do okay with JavaScript, but um, Angular JavaScript is something that I really want to get experience in that I don't have. So. I haven't played with any of that. I was going to just tell you how acute that remark was, but that was a totally <laughs> different, <laughs> totally different thought process there. Yeah, well, because my brain is squirrel brain and. It goes down bit, many paths at once. A bit, a bit protracted from time to time. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that works. So, how are you guys uh, doing today? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Yeah, things are going. Not a whole lot new here, I suppose. Anxious to talk about G code. Yeah, giving me anxiety to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, l l let's start with what Andy has worked on this week, then. Nothing. Nothing. I didn't. Yeah, so I didn't really nothing. play with anything at the moment. So th this week's been pretty dry for me and the printer. That's disappointing. <laughs> I guess it happens. Just have, yeah, just didn't need anything this week, really. So I wasn't really working on any projects. I was trying to um, put together a, a masquerade mask there for a little while. And, uh, you know, I use SolidWorks for stuff, and it just doesn't do organic things. And it's really hard to be able to work on a on a warped profile, you know, that you would make for the face. And, and that's all kind of new to me. So I wound up giving up on that and just buying one because the, the little party's coming up here quick. But uh, maybe down the road, I'll, I'll try again. But that's about as close as I got to my printer this week. But, okay. Yeah, so that was that beaked uh, Plague Doctor-shaped mask. Right. Kind of, yeah. Yep. Cool. cool. Chris, you work on anything this week? Yeah, I had printer problems. Uh, that old jalopy uh, didn't didn't upgrade to Windows 10 very well. So my printer was <laughs> out of commission until just last night. Um, just took my old laptop with a broken screen and just used it to replace the old jalopy. And um I got a friend with a birthday coming up, so I printed a little thing to stick his gift card in. Kind of cool. Okay. Well, that's nice. But yeah, that's all I did. I was playing with the cursed, a cursed 10-year-old electronic mess. <laughs> Why do all my 10-year-old electronics keep breaking? <laughs> <laughs> now, let me ask you this. Uh, was it, uh, was the, the machine that you were using, you use for your slicer? Or do you use like Octoprint or something like that to... to print with your printer um i was using it as a as the slicer so i was using ah. win, windows 7 with cura and um so i tried to upgrade to to windows 10 and windows 10 just has some issue with my main board and just blue screens and i can't i can't i, I can't find enough drivers or whatever it needs for that main board to work right so it's just hmm. no use nope. anymore just to yeah, be but curious, it, it's like a Pentium no. three, right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah no, that, that's where uh, I was going with that. Is this your old laptop from back in the day that you used to use? No. 
Oh, this okay. one's a this this one's a a dual core, three point one gigahertz. You know, okay. uh, Intel. So you Pentium three. Um, slightly off subject here. You remember those combat compact laptops that I used growing up that I had like multiples of? Yeah, isn't yeah. your kid using one of them? We're still using them, and they're they're running Windows eleven. <laughs> <laughs> like. We had that the discussion was, about you welding on the one. So yep, that, that, those are the ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're still kicking. Yeah, but no, I think I got lucky with that. No, my, <laughs> uh, I, I, I gave my that that old one. I gave to my nephew, and uh, this was right, right when SATA hard drives were start starting to come out, and okay. uh, his friend was like, "Oh yeah, no, the hard drives are hot swappable. You can just pull it out. You know, <laughs> no, not with ID." And he, and that was the end of that one. Oh geez, <laughs> huh? Yeah, like, I like working on stuff when it's still running. In fact, the wife asked me if I would adjust her. Uh, um, uh, what do you call it when you run in place? Um, treadmill. Run on a treadmill. Yeah, adjust the belt on the treadmill. And uh, she was talking about it while she was using it, saying we need to adjust it because it was squeaking a little. And so I, I went and just grabbed my tools real quick and. And came back, and, and she was she was like, "Well, you want me to stop?" And I told her, "Nah, just keep going. It'll be easier to make sure I get it adjusted right." <laughs> get and, the right. Yeah. She was like, I, "I don't think this is a good idea to do while it's still working. I, I should really stop." And I'm like, "No, nah, just keep going. We're almost done." <laughs> I, I agree with your wife there. I have a weld. I have a weld mark on the end of one of my ratchets to prove that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear! I'm guessing making contact with uh, while working yeah. on a starter motor or something to ground yep, or exactly. Yep, <laughs> that'll do it. And definitely don't mess with your 3D printer while it's running. I'm definitely amazed by my friends sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, just think of it, Frank. If you take five of we got three of us here, but five of your friends, you're the one in the middle. Five of your closest friends, you are the one in the middle. Well, they, they say that you are a reflection of the five most influential people that you know. Oh, there you go. And uh, considering that you guys are at least two of them, Kevin keeps <laughs> his mouth shut most of the time. So I, I'm glad to have him as one of the influential people, too. But <laughs> you guys just kind of make me question my life choices. Well, Kevin's really smart, and he thinks about what he does for the most part you know, before he does it. Whereas Andy and I just kind of do. And sometimes that's really stupid. <laughs> well, and oh, yeah. you know, I, I'm going to now start blaming the two of you whenever I just do instead of thinking <laughs> about it. Because <laughs> I, I usually regret it when that happens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How about you, Kev? You work on anything this week? Uh, not this week. Oh. It's, it's been kind of, uh, I've been busy with other things. Well, and I guess this is a month with very little in the way of national holidays and stuff like that. So not necessarily a whole lot to worry about except for spring, right? right. I oh, am yeah, looking forward to sitting down and redesigning the, we were talking about the canopies this last, mm. you know, uh, uh, podcast that uh, I'm looking forward to sitting down and getting me some dowels and uh, making making that sucker and putting that together. Nice. Yeah, I'm looking I'm forward to start our camping season camping. here. I'm going to have to put together some other trip for this year to go out uh, again. Yeah, it's going to be a little tricky to, to arrange for me because I just switched jobs. So 
I guess so. No PTO needs to be built up, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not going to happen until summer, though. You got six months to build up some uh, TPO. Yeah, I'll be TPO. there. Sure, but it's also still his first year with the, with the job, too. So whatever we do should probably be strictly around Chris's schedule. So, you know, he could maybe do it on a weekend or when he's not working or something, you know. Well, the great thing is uh, I'll be doing 410s, so I'll be able to have a three-day weekend, and then I should at least have a day or two of PTO by then that we can make it a good four, four or five-day trip. Nice. That's good. That's good. Oh, that's, that's a long... Yeah, that'll be great. Definitely looking forward to that. I'm jealous of your guys' four, 410 shifts that you and Kev are looking at uh, upcoming here, hopefully to move to and whatnot. That would... I, I'm a five day a week, sometimes six day a week kind of schedule myself. So I'm envious of having that three day weekend you guys will get every week. Well, and you're also a small business owner. So until you get to the point where you can call in rich, you're going to be putting in extra <laughs> hours anyway. So yep. yeah, that's true. And it's more of a side gig than an actual business. So it's not going to be something I could ever really like hand off to anybody. In fact, at the moment, my van is even broke down. So yeah. Uh. We'll get there. How about you, Frank? You do anything fun with your printer? Um, I'm kind of in the same boat with slower week. Um, God, giving us a hard time. Geez. <laughs> <laughs> I I did spend the whole week printing off more of the brackets from my tables. Okay. And um, I realized that I need to design a new bracket for a shelf to go underneath the main tabletop. Okay. Um. And while I'm thinking about that, I'm wondering if I should redesign all of the brackets. Because <laughs> that's where I am with it. Um, yeah. I'm also um, kind of tentatively planning some Valentine's Day stuff, looking around, seeing what I can get there. And I've been thinking about stuff to print off for the uh, the um, spring fertility c- celebrations. So Okay. We'll, we'll see where that goes. That'll be fun. You know, I've always been envious of your printing because my printing is always smaller components, like mm-hmm. under two inches for like 90% of the things I do is under two inch cubed, you know, mm-hmm. every once in a while I'll get something that's, you know, six or eight inches. You know, it, it's rare for me to go above that, like 160 millimeters in any of my measurements that I use. And so I'm oh. kind of jealous that you're you're putting together these these like full bill play. I mean, you're actually using your printer to its fullest to do some of the prints you're doing. I think when that's I yeah, can, cool. I actually I, took the last bracket that I started printing, and something about the PETG didn't like the way I was trying to print it okay. um, with the supports and the supports, especially on the inside of the tube part, were kind of a pain in the butt to get out. And after talking about the the tree supports and all that, I decided to tip it up on a corner, mm-hmm. and it made the inside part really easy to get out. Okay, because it wasn't um, it wasn't printed on directly by the part or for the part. Okay, yeah. Um, so I, I liked that I had that idea. But um, before it was put up on the corner, I guess I was getting two or three parts on a build plate. So did, were you, did you cock the entire um, item on an angle on the build plate? Is that what you're talking about? That way? You're... So um, there's the part that has a tube 
for the um, table. Yeah. And then it's got um, so that you can have two support beams coming in at the side. Okay. And I just tilted it up on the pipe that uh, okay. is going to have the leg in it. So the support parts of the bracket were up in the air. Okay. And um, because it's at 45 degree angles anyway, and I can print that without the supports, I considered doing it without supports at all. But if it was going to fall, that would have failed the whole print, especially the higher it got. I didn't want that to happen. Okay. But by the time it got to taking out the supports, they were barely connected to the part at all. So I could pull it off and spend maybe nice. five minutes in post instead of 15 or 20 trying to get the little pieces of plastic off the walls. So I hate those prints when you go to pull them off and you're, and you're looking at them, getting ready to, to clean them up, and you realize, ah, I better sit down in front of the TV or something with this one because it's going to take quite a while to clean this up. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially with the PETG because it strings as much yeah. as it does. So that, that is I one mean, of the bad things about it. Half of it's just knocking off those little pieces anyway. But um, there are like there's screw holes in this part, and some of them have supports in them and some of them have like a, a small layer of filament. So you have to find where the edge is to get the, the hole out. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think I ran into that at all with the PLA. So, huh? Yeah. It, that PETG definitely has the stringing problem and getting boogers everywhere that definitely makes it not the greatest material to print with. That's why like anytime I'm printing, Anything that has to be pretty, I would prefer to print with PLA. But anything mechanical, you know, PETG, I think, is definitely worth it. Or TPU. Or nylon, if you can print nylon. Yeah, I'm not quite there myself yet. Um, so I had a realization this week. I don't know if you guys saw my notes. But um, just kind of for the curiosities part, I have been switching back and forth between filaments often enough and the settings are far enough different that I decided it's probably a good idea to start identifying the material that I sliced it for. In the file name? <laughs> In the file name. <laughs> so I don't accidentally print, obviously, something PLA that was sliced for PETG, but then I don't go the I other way either. I think there was a plugin for Kira I remember using at one point that I could put the material or the profile name into the file name. And then my profile name was the material type. And the problem I have with that is longer file names. Like I think that my LCD screen on my printer is only 15 characters long. I know exactly. So back in the old Marlin days, I had the exact same problem. But the Marlin 2.0... I've noticed when you select a file, instead of just going straight and printing it, it'll give you a yes or no. Do you actually want to print this file? And it will print the entire file name in like, I think it'll go up to like five rows worth okay. of text. In that, what is it, like 30 character limit or whatever. But uh, but that's been so useful at being able to, what exactly what you're talking about. Because yeah, you got to cram all the important information into the very front. So I always have like the profile name, I try to simplify that down to being the smallest. And then I like having the the time in hours, how long it will take, and also how many grams of plastic it will take um, in the file name. But then a lot of the times 
when you're going through the list, like all you got is just that header information and you now no longer know what part it is. Right. <laughs> well, you've only got, you only print with four, four different kinds of material for the most part. So you really only need like one, le one character for each of those types. Yeah. You got a very good point. Do G that, for that would save me quite a, yeah. Like, I use like PG yeah. and T for me or whatever. Yeah, you TLA. Yeah. So you can use T for TPU and G for Pet G and L for PLA. Um, yeah. And A for ABS. I mean, that is a good idea. That's but a yeah, good call, I definitely hear you Chris. with the, pro the problem. Over here, spitting wisdom. <laughs> spitting something. It, it happens occasionally. <laughs> I even surprise well, myself. Well, the clock is right. A broken clock is still right two times a day. That's why I like that we record these conversations, though, even if we weren't publishing them, because sometimes you just blow us away there, Chris. It's <laughs> it's rare. I, I mean, this is the first time I <laughs> think rare. you have blown my mind while we have been recording. <laughs> but that, that's still pretty impressive. Thank you. Like, oh, dear. kind of earth shattering. I wish I had thought of it. Uh, I've only been printing with PLA right now, so I haven't actually been putting um, any of that information in my file names. But that's actually a really great idea. I will be doing this <laughs> as I design things. <laughs> I actually just pulled up Fusion 360 to try out myself this, this last week. And uh, yeah, it's actually pretty intuitive. I'm going to go with that. It's good. Cool. Yeah, maybe I'll have to give that a try. Well, and it's very useful for the mechanical like basic designs, squares and triangles and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. that is one thing I designed this week that I totally forgot about. Um, watching some of the YouTubes for carpenters that have 3D printers as well. And yeah. it seems pretty common for them to print out these little pyramids for um, putting their the, what they're working on to raise it off of their uh, bench. Mm -hmm. So they can paint or stain it without it contacting oh. anything on the bottom side. That's oh. a great idea. Ooh, and I, I need so to make some for the father-in-law. I'll just send you the um, the STL, Chris. That'd be cool. Yeah, that is a neat idea. And you know, you can stain both sides, and because they're perfect triangles, they're all going to be the same height, no matter which side is down. And um, until they get worn out anyway, they're going to come to a perfect point. So you can stain at least. Maybe you don't want to paint because it's a little thicker, but you can stain the one side, flip it over, stain the other side, and let the whole thing cure in one go instead of having to do the one side and let it cure and then do the other side. So, yeah, that's a really yeah, great idea. Yeah, because a lot of times you'll get over staining around the sides, or at least I when i do it but i'm a novice so now that i think about it i might want to redesign them so that the the points are rounded off so that they're a little stronger because even though they're printed out of petg it's just a little point of plastic it'll round off square off anyway eventually anyway yeah yeah huh i'd check a woodworker's form and go with whatever they do well and yeah my design is the same as all the ones i saw online it's just Kind of an afterthought now. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you, or I'll post up the uh, the STL for those and save you some work. Awesome. I'd appreciate it. Yeah. 
All right. So we've got a topic this week. What? Actually, I think this is the earliest we've gotten into the topic since episode one or two. You got a good point. It is only like 25 minutes in. <laughs> yeah. Should, should we sit and chat for another 20 minutes or should we? No. Usually no, is our way. No. Actually, I think that this subject is involved enough. We can probably talk about it for 40 minutes and be fine. Well, I want to um, talk about how stupid you guys really could. are. <laughs> well, we can talk about yours first if you want, Kev. Um, well, let, yeah. let's introduce the topic and then we'll we'll see where we go. <laughs> yes, that's right. I thought I said it. Uh, this, <laughs> the topic this week is G-Code. Yay, G-Code. Partially Let's named get... because no one can find the file for it. Oh, gee. <laughs> Everybody's so scared of them and think they're so complicated until you really understand what's going on and realize how dumb it really is. How simple. Yeah, but there's lots of it to make it. Yeah, fun. yeah. <laughs> got to come through a lot for sure. So, Kevin, not too... <laughs> we have talked a little bit in the past how... The format that you slice and export for your printer is basically a photo slide. I had the word earlier. You know, uh, slide deck. PowerPoint? Did you have anything? Yeah, that one. <laughs> because words. Um, did you have anything that you wanted to expand on from that point? Not really. Like uh, you guys have talked in the past that you can get your sliced file and open it in a, a word pad and have it be intelligible to the human brain. Uh, I tried that with, with both of the formats that uh, my printer will recognize. And it just gives me a bunch of gibberish. Okay. So the, the sliced files that I could work with are, they're black mystery boxes to me. Hmm. That, that is kind of neat. I, I was, I, I do got a little bit information on, on SLA printer files. I, I was able to find, at least for the Photon, uh, the format that it uses, a breakdown of how its file is built up. And it's it's actually kind of interesting the way they did it. I mean, it just makes complete sense. But, you know, when you're looking at an SLA file, you got the header of the file. Now, it's all, you know, just broken down into, into you know, uh, uh, different values at different byte settings at the header. So, you know, so far into the file, this particular number means this kind of thing. And and so the header includes a lot of different information about how to set up the printer. And then at the base of the, at the base of the header or after the header, you get information on each layer, like how much his Z access is supposed to come up or how much um, time it's supposed to stay with the UV light on for each layer, the exposure time and all that other kind of stuff per layer. And then after that, you have essentially each layer having its own like bitmap image, a black and white bitmap image at the end of the file. And that will run all the way to the end. So when you open up, um, you know, an SLA printer file, it is just going to be gibberish here. It's not written even in an ASCII form. Um, so it's, it, it can be kind of messy to look at. You're not going to see any information. You could probably use a hex editor to kind of read some of the information in the header, but unlike our G code files that we're going to use on, you know, our, um, uh, filament printers, 
where we can go in and edit stuff. An SLA printer is kind of a black box. So, so what you're saying then is the parsed code for the image. I'm guessing. Does that make sense uh, to you, or is it encrypted in some way while it's at it? Nope, I don't think it's encrypted at all. It is compressed, at okay. least with the photons thing here. It is a compressed image, but I think it's a lossless compressed image. So the compression is just to reduce file size. It's not actually, um, you know, it's a lossless compression to these black and white images at the very end. But okay. that's that's the, all the compression I could see, at least in this this photon format. It seems like everybody's got their own way of doing it when it comes to SLA printers. You look at our our G-code based printers and you know, you could use just about any for, you know, any slicer for any uh, one of our um, printers and, and have it function. But SLA is, it's kind of its own game. It's a little bit more proprietary. Yeah. So. I guess the biggest restrictions on G-code is the build size. Obviously you don't want some, something that was designed for a printer as big as mine at 300 millimeters cubed and trying to print on a printer that's 100 millimeters cubed. Yeah. But like Kevin says, his printer can use, you know, two different types of formats that the printer itself knows how to read. Okay. And the one I found for photon here isn't either one of those. So I'm sure each one's going to be a little different, but looking at it the way at least photon does their, you know, dot photons files, it's, I mean, it makes sense the way they did it. All the information is there that the printer would need, but it's it's not editable after you slice it, like okay. our FDM instructions are. So uh, comparing SLA or G-code to SLA is a very different thing. So, okay, yeah, I don't think uh, our G-code talk here is going to have a whole lot to do with SLA because you can't go in and edit. You can't run scripts on a uh, you know a file that you recently sliced for your your sla printer and all sorts of stuff like that like yeah if we're doing like a temperature tower or something like that we get to go in and like actually insert the different temperature changes per layer and all sorts of stuff like that and with with uh, kevin's printer it's little things like that just don't seem to be an option yeah nope. actually before you slice well, and he does have his um, test card that he prints off. Yeah. That does basically the same thing, you know, different cures at different depths and that sort of thing. So it yeah. can be done. It, it would just require approaching it in the bilayer approach. Well, like with and us. that one, that one has the has a very specific file name. You can't change the file name at all on that one. Otherwise, it won't work properly. And then you wouldn't want to give a regular thing that file name. Otherwise, it'll screw up your uh, your print. Okay. So it definitely sounds like it's a proprietary thing from probably SLA printer to SLA printer. Probably, yeah. Probably. That sounds right. Yeah. I was reading that the code is u unique to each printer for the most part when it comes to SLA printers. And... um. And the code sent to uh, F, uh, FDM printers can can be unique to each printer too. Sometimes, also, I was looking at that. So, but a yeah. lot of the FDM printers are open source, so they, they there needs to be for anything open source, there needs to be some kind of universal thing that they are all going to have in common. Well, kind of. Um, 
I could like, see that there'd be some G code that might be individual for certain printers. Like if you're running an IDEX printer, you're going to be, you know, accessing, let's say a second extruder that, you know, a single extruder printer has nothing to do. So, you know, the G code for those aren't, aren't going to work with each other for those reasons, but the actual code itself will still yeah, be basically be the, same. the same. Yeah. So. I mean, you yeah. still use the same codes to heat up the head, you know, the same G-codes to move the carriage around and whatnot. But At that point, you would be identifying which head is doing what. Right. Um, one thing about the dual extruder uh, FDM printers is I'm f- struggling to think of a use case where you would have them both running at the same time. So it would be more switch this one on, switch that one off. Well, you could print two things at the same time. You can, with an IDEX, one of the options you do have is is to mirror um, okay. where, you, you know, you cut your bed in half and then you're running both carriages at the same time, printing the same item. So you can like duplicate like that. I have seen them do that with the options in the slicer for that, but uh hmm. You know, that that is kind of like specialized options kind of thing. You're basically turning your printer into a single head printer. It's just doing it twice. Two single head (laughs) printers running in parallel. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So what are some of the G codes? Um, I actually don't know the codes off the top of my head. Not their, (laughs) uh, not the actual nomenclature for them. I know there's, that a, there's, there's only like six or eight that we use, like that covers ninety percent of the the codes that we use. I mean, uh, I G zero and G one are all movement codes. Okay. G zero is typically a like movement code, and G one is a movement code when you're extruding as well. Just like okay. the, just like the CNC, you got G zero zero, and that's a rapid movement, and G zero one, which is a linear in- interpolation movement. Mm-hmm. So the G code that we use is actually translated straight from uh, the the commercial machining. Um, you just said it. That machine that you were just talking about. The CNC. Yeah, the CNC. Um, yeah. That and uh, the mills and that sort of thing that you can do complex designs in. Um, they all use the same G code. And that's why... I hesitated when you were talking about the uh, proprietary G-code because as far as I know, there is a standard for that. It seems like there would be anyway, just because it's so broadly used. Um, It would be preventatively complex for a shop to buy a new machine and not be able to use existing codes that are already, you know, that they've already been using across the machine shop. Yeah, but there might be supported codes from one machine to another that might sure. differ. And I think that's maybe what Chris was kind of more getting into um, when he said that they you know, would yeah. be proprietary. It's just like the IDEX extruder, you would actually have to set which head you're working at. When you got a single head extruder, you would never have to worry about doing that. You know, and, so. Um, and I think it also has limits on, uh, on, your, on your range set at the beginning of the code, doesn't it? Or something like that? No, no, not that I no, okay. not that I know of. I mean, uh, the like I said, the most like common codes for it. The size of your print bed is limited to how much your G code decides to work within. 
it's not a limitation that you put on the printer. So it's a limitation the slicer slices the slicer for the yeah, yeah. The, the the absolute positioning for the head. So for the, the slicer would be the one that interprets, hey, don't go over you know two twenty for my printer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you could tell your printer to, hey, run to this G code and your printer will seriously try to get there, even though it's, you know, way further than it could actually travel. It'll just and slam into crash. the slide. It'll crash and, <laughs> you know, do that. So tear itself it, apart. Yeah. Um, so I just opened up a file. Should have thought of that one sooner myself anyway. <laughs> um, and they cura does identify minimum x y and z maximum x y and z for the print is at the it very commented of the file it is okay so, so yeah that, so that's, that's not actually g code there that's just a comment so that's well, and, for and us i uh that's why i identified it as cura instead of actual ah, processing gotcha because it is commented stuff and one of the nice things about cura is they do identify the process Especially in the first several lines, they say, oh, we're going to go to zero here. We're going to do the the wife, and then we're going to do the raft or whatever, you know. Um, and that's so great the, that they do it. So when you write scripts and stuff for it or, or need to do things at layer changes or something like that, they got so many comments, you can just search for them because I don't yeah. think people realize how big these files are. I mean, you, you get a – you get – a text file that's like five or six meg. I mean, any nowadays five or six megs, not nothing, but when it is pure text, oh, you're scrolling for days. So the file that I'm looking at is five layers. I, I It's just a little puck that I use to get the extra filament out before I try to print something. Okay. And um, it's a 50 millimeter cross circle. Okay. Um, five layers tall, one millimeter. Um, and it's got 2,400 lines of code in it. <laughs> that is so many. <laughs> <laughs> For five layers, small layers, not complex yeah. layers. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. G-code's um, some, some neat things. So, yeah, so you don't want to sit down and try to write your own G-code like you would for a CNC. <laughs> You'd want there are, you wanna there are some folks that still do that. If you're going to sure. come up with your own starting script and ending script, you are going to sit down and write those, but that's not, that's a totally different, that, that's like just putting together one or two separate movements, you know? So they're, they're simple. They're, they're, they're not a problem versus the actual print, which is billions of movements. So yep, just not billions, but that. yeah. And then find the right place to insert something if you want to pause or, you know. The other file that I have in this folder has got mm -hmm. 164 layers, and it's quite a bit more complex. <laughs> At 556 lines of code. 556,000, sorry. 556,000 <laughs> right. lines of code. So, yeah. Wow. That is a lot. I mean, you got to think, too, if you're doing a circle... You you can't tell the printer to print a circle of so big or whatever. It only does straight lines. So right. however much it's broken up into, you know, it's going to be hundreds of lines just to make it do one simple circle. And that's actually uh, one of the settings that I tweaked a little bit to 
make the smaller lines require be have a minimum size and the maximum lines have a maximum size um, okay. for going around those corners. And you yeah. can see that there are triangles in my round prints mm -hmm. because that's how it gets broken down is into those triangular flat surfaces. But um, it requires infinitely, well, not infinitely, many fewer uh, lines of code to accomplish it. Okay. So, sorry, Marlin has a G-code command um, that lets you move in a, in, move in a radius. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think at least Kira doesn't use it. Oh, okay, that might be. I could. Hmm. Um, but anyway, now is probably as good a time as any to dig into the G code file just a little bit and talk about okay. it. Um, for instance, every line in the G code file, uh, you've got your beginning part that tells the processor, the Marlin processor what's going on, where to set temperatures and that sort of thing. And then every line after that is a straight line. So, and what it's doing is it's telling your printer to go from wherever that line starts to where it ends and to extrude over that distance. Yeah. And so when you're doing something like a sphere, if you're doing it with all the little lines, we're talking hundreds, if not thousands of commands, especially when you're in the um, larger x, y coordinates, as opposed to the horizontal or vertical. Yeah. Um, it, it's going to be doing a lot more lines in that area, and um, or at least lines of code. And that's why if you can reduce those, uh, the setting in Cura is the mesh fixes, by the way. OK. Um, and the three settings are the maximum resolution, maximum travel resolution, and maximum deviation. Okay. And if you can adjust those so that it, there's more straight lines in the circle, it will reduce processing time and ultimately reduce uh, print time because it's not working so hard trying to figure out all these itty-bitty little movements. Okay. I didn't really think that you'd save that much time, but it's not something I actually really, you know, thought about either. Because I mean, it definitely would if it was taking any length of time setting up each individual command. You know, mm -hmm. that would make sense. But um, but yeah, if you noticed an actual change, that's interesting. I did, and actually, I was introduced to it because I saw a video. I can't even remember his name. He's one of the YouTubers that does a lot of the testing for process on YouTube. And he has a script that he wrote that allows him to evaluate the length of each of the uh, movements. Okay. And when he put it in the bell curve, there was a ton of these itty bitty, you know, 10th of a millimeter movements. Yeah. And um, so he it made the adjustments to his settings in Kira and reduced all those itty bitty little movements and cut his print time down by like a quarter to a third. Oh, wow. That's a huge yeah. difference. It, it was a pretty major, uh, noticeable adjustment. So, wow. Um, well, it depends on what you're going for again, functionality or something else. Like, you know, the Pokeball I printed for, uh, for my daughter's Christmas present. 
you know you just you want that to be as as round and nice as nice looking as possible fair but. yeah absolutely but at the same time it sounds like he's getting rid of the the little tiny uh movements that you see with robotics where it's it's gotten to a certain point and then it says okay now i need to do this thing that doesn't really accomplish anything other than helping me figure out where i am and then moving on like i've seen that all the time in the analyzers at work there are all these extra movements that i look at and say why is it doing that all it's doing is wasting time we could get this done in half the time if it just didn't do these extra movements yeah. so is is that what what you were talking about, Frank, that it was just getting rid of extra movements that didn't serve any purpose? Not really. With your machines at work, I would expect that to be a calibration movement for the arm. Um, just because if there isn't like really fine sensors on it, it can lose its position and you don't want to break glass or break sure. the, lose the sample or whatever you're working with. So if it goes to a point where it knows this is zero and yeah. then makes a straight movement to where the thing is, it can be fairly certain that it's going to get to where it needs to. Yeah. As opposed to, I mean, it depends on how old it is and the manufacturer and all that. I'm sure that there are machines in the field that just have very precise measurements and know where it is within reason at all times and it doesn't have to re-zero yeah there, um, are, there are a lot of those like most of them okay and even so, the ones that have these calibration movements if you were to manually move the probe mm -hmm. it would put it back where it needs to be when you start it up again okay yeah um so what we're talking about with the g-code is like I talk about calculus a lot, and to be clear to our listeners, I actually have not passed my calculus class. I just have a <laughs> very rudimentary understanding of it. Yeah. Um, but one of the goals that they were trying to accomplish that resulted in calculus as a category for math was they were trying to calculate the area of a circle. Right. Because you can calculate the area of a square real easy. You know, you got two dimensions and you can figure that out. But a circle is very complex just because there aren't necessarily any straight lines. And so what they did to figure it out is they realized that if you were to take the circle and turn it into like a, a slice, like a, a slice of pie or pizza or something like that, right? And you take the points and invert them. So the small end is by the big end of the other slice. If you do that with, say, four slices of a pie, you get something that kind of looks a little swervy. But if you do it with eight pieces of a pie, it starts to resemble a square. If you do it with 100 pieces of pie, it's even more square. If you do it with a million pieces of pie, it's it looks square, even though you know realistically it's not your eye can't tell the difference right yeah so as you approach this is where calculus gets in trouble because they play fast and loose with infinity but if you approach an infinite number of pieces the rounded back of that slice is irrelevant and so the way our um 
the way that applies to our printers is they're designed to print in straight lines. And as a circle is a bunch of straight lines in the G code, as it approaches an infinite number of those straight lines, it looks like a circle to the human eye. Sure, yeah. But if you make adjustments so that those straight lines are allowed to be bigger, say five millimeters, Mm -hmm. it's obvious that those lines are there, but it does the same circle within reasonable specs. So if I applied this to my Pokeball that I printed, it would be more like a soccer ball as opposed to a Pokeball. Yes. I, I guess is what right. Frank is get, getting getting at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, With a bunch yeah. of flat sides instead of what appears to be a perfectly spherical design. Yeah. Gotcha. And this has been Frankie's calculus <laughs> class. I hope you guys have a good day. <laughs> Didn't remember a thing. I, I suck at calculus, but I love the subject. How about that? <laughs> you like the concept, but actually applying it is is rough and that's that's what i got into when i did calculus 20 years ago i didn't i didn't ever pass either <laughs> I, actually I didn't liked, even attempt i liked the physics calculus i didn't so much like the math calculus which is its own curiosity well that's because when you when you're doing things in the scientific field uh you're you're putting the math to use when you're taking right. a math class it's all just purely theoretical and so like for example um i always say that my best algebra teacher was my general chemistry 2 professor because (laughs) he would he taught things like the quadratic formula and and when you would actually use them whereas in my college algebra class the guys rambling on about the i mean and he was a good teacher also don't get me wrong but he'd be rambling on about the quadratic formula and and somebody would say, so when are we going to use this in the real world? And his only answer was, oh, it's very useful. <laughs> and then he went on. So it's that answer. That answer is very useful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and admittedly, the difference between working through the theory and trying to understand it was not as easy as sitting there in the physics class and using a very complex equation to figure out based on the mass, the fuel volume, the um, the burn speed, all of that to figure out how a rocket ship will reach neutral gravity around the Earth. Right. At any point in that flight, you can this equation would tell you what its mass was and how much fuel it had. So, yeah. yeah. Very <laughs> complex and very fun, and I've forgotten most of it since I was in the class. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's been 20 it's been 20 years since I took the class and you know, I've I've used trig, I've used trigonometry and I've used uh algebra obviously, but I've never once used calculus in my professional life. Mm. Well, okay. So my dad has actually struggled with the concept of calculus too. And it wasn't until I described every other form of math as a rudimentary form of calculus that he understood it. Ah. Um, it because his, his expectation has always been, well, if you teach us what we're doing with it and then how to get there, it's better. But um, the way, at least in the U.S., I don't know how it is in any other country, we tend to teach how to do it and then 
what to do with it. Yeah. And um, my argument ever since I took the calculus class is no, you need to understand arithmetic to understand geometry and you need to understand geometry to understand trig and you need to understand trig to understand calculus, but they're really additive. You know, the one depends on the other, but they're all rudimentary forms of calculus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I get what you're saying. I just have no interest in pursuing math further than I already have. <laughs> well, that's fine too. You're welcome to your wrong opinion. <laughs> uh, I'm with Kevin. I've had enough. At least going through the classes and getting it all down when you do need to know something or, you know, need to use it in any way, even if you don't necessarily remember how off the top of your head or whatever, once you, you know, research what it is you need to do, it becomes so much easier to, to know where to go from there. So it's definitely right. worth worth doing. I, I had to write a routine for my son the other day, trans, translating um, polar coordinates to Cartesian coordinates. And I've never really had to work with uh, with any of, of that either. And it was just kind of nice to actually see it in use, that kind of level of math in something that I was doing day to day with a nine-year-old, you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> Your kid, Go your your kid's gonna be a nerd. <laughs> I I said it when you showed me what you were working on with him, and it's yeah. like, oh, th this kid's gonna be having a very good baseline for advanced mathematics. <laughs> if he's asking these questions now, he, he's gonna have. It, it was like when uh, I made the association between me working with an early CAD program. And having a concept for the Cartesian plane in algebra. Okay. Because I already had that concept that I had worked with. I saw the application when it was discussed in class. And because your son has explored on his own this concept, he's going to have that baseline when they discuss it when he's in class. And so he's going to be able to advance to the higher level of math, I expect, fairly easy. Hopefully. We'll have to see how badly that ADD gets in his way. It does do that. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully he'll be able to utilize, utilize it as the, the superpower it can be, and hopefully the negative parts of it won't interfere too much, but we'll have to see. We all got our struggles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that we do. <laughs> so but I said we could fill up an hour talking about G-Code, and we've done it. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to cover something I discovered. Um, apparently, hmm. polish, you know, I, I got some pool ball polish, you know, to clean up okay. my old pool balls because they're really Yellow? beat up. Yeah. They're, they're old and they're really beat up. But um, so the wife got me some pool ball polish for the holiday. And, yeah. um, when I printed that Pokeball, um, the, 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 top, the, 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 the top and bottom where I had a little bit of supports to make sure that the ball part was holding to the build plate, um, uh, where I was cleaning that up, just was really rough. And the rest of it was all nice and shiny, but the, 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 the top where I cleaned it up was still rough and not, not so much. That ball polish took care, took, took care of that. <laughs> really? If you need to make your prints shiny and pretty again in in one area or another use a little use a little polish 
you know. So your uh, your pool balls are are they resin or are they stone? They're resin. Okay. So they're, so they're, they're just some of the older cheapies, but um, I mean they they're still solid. They're better. they're good cue ball or good pool balls. Yeah, they're. I was just they're, trying they're, to. They're not like nicked or they're not like nicked or scratched. Right. They're just you know worn, and so. I, I I started polishing one of those balls by myself, and um, it took me like half an hour to get one ball halfway done. And I'm going, you know, I'm gonna 3D print my way out of this. So I'm gonna get me a little motor and some and some pads and uh, make me a little little thing that's gonna run the balls around on on some pads with polish on That'll it, be fun. and just put it in the ball cleaner and let it go for a couple hours you you should talk to my dad he uh kind of pseudo invented this uh three cup it looks like when you think of the old-fashioned uh rope spinners Mm -hmm. when you've got the the three strands of rope that you're spinning together except for instead of having the hooks on it for the rope you've got three components that come out and have cups and the expectation of this is that it'll turn say a piece of wood into a sphere by turning okay okay and um he might have some ideas and working together the three of us could probably come up with something that would work real good for those cue balls that sounds like a neat project (laughs) yeah no i was just gonna print a print print a circle with smaller circle holes in it and then just have a flat pad on the bottom and then just pad it all and then just have a, a gear that, that runs the top one so that they all roll in, in in a circle and you just keep the pad wet with polish. Okay. I mean, I Pretty guess it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> just keep it, keep it simple, you know, yeah. But but I, I want to over-engineer this because it sounds like fun. <laughs> sounds like fun. <laughs> what about well, how you would polish a... Um bowling ball by hand with a rag you know you would you'd put the the ball itself in a rag and pull it back and forth and so the ball itself was sliding around in the rag kind of chaotically but that would only be essentially one motion you'd have to achieve in the system in order to to get the ball to be able to move chaotically enough that you were you were hitting every surface on the ball itself and then just having polish in the, in that rag itself well, yeah. it did There's plenty spot. of options to turn circular motion into linear motion too, and make it oscillate. Yeah. So there's two ideas for you, Chris. Cool. <laughs> Stuff <laughs> to think about. <laughs> Anybody else have something they want to get off their chest? Discuss about G code. Took me a while to realize that the printer operated in both relative positioning and absolute positioning for the extruded. Um, plastic. When I was having problems with um, the wet noodle problems of pushing TPU through a Bowden tube, I discovered that anytime I would get a clog, doing like a manual retraction would fix the problem. And everybody Mm -hmm. was always saying online to, if you're going to print TPU on a Bowden system, to don't retract your filament, turn your retractions off. And yet that was kind of, when I would sit there with it and Whenever I would see it start to get uh, to clog, you know, you'd you'd pull out the filament a little bit and push it back in, and it would start working again. 
So it sounds like actually like retractions might have been the solution, not a cause of the problems. Sure. And so I wound up making a, a small program that would run through a G code and insert retractions after a certain amount of extrusion on purpose just to kind of keep that clean. And mm-hmm. it turned out it worked and worked pretty well. I made it so that it would uh, uh, insert only on infill only. It would try to avoid inserting retractions um, on the exterior surface because every time you do a retraction on like a straight line, you know, the head does stop there for a moment. So you do, you do get a, a spot that you would notice so that it, mm-hmm. it would always do it on the inside. And when it had a long extrusion coming up on the outside, it would retract before then, even if it didn't need to, that way it could, you know, make that run without problems. And it worked out really good, but getting up to that point of injecting a retraction was really kind of hard pulling it out of absolute and going into relative and then putting it back in absolute position. It took me a while to figure out what was going on there and a little bit of study. And that was kind of a, a, a surprise that, uh, that it worked that way. But that hmm. was my experience with, with those two, those two codes and that and start G code. I've also put in, uh, what is it to adjust the heater? I think it's like an M102 or something like that of the the extruder and the bed. My printer always starts heating only one at a time. I think it heats mm-hmm. the bed first and then it will heat the extruder. But it, it kind of bothered me that it would spend all this time heating up the bed. And then as soon as the bed was up to the temperature, then it would start trying to heat up the extruder. So my start code, I went and since I mostly print with PLA, I used the i think it's m102 or something that mine's got it the, is m140 and 104 for the start of each one and 190 and 109 to when it gets to that temperature and recognizes it it goes to the next okay so. okay but yeah setting the the code to get it up to start the bed and the the head at the same time to get start getting up to temperature before it sits and waits for the bed to get up to temperature. That way the head could be heating at the exact same time as the bed is. That, that saved a like little when bit you of pre-heat, time on the startup. Yeah. When you preheat, yep. it does both. And um, yeah. that's actually why I preheat before yep. or try to preheat before I start the print. Yep. yep. I agree. Um, but if you do start the print awesome. right off the bat, then at least it's doing something very similar now. Yeah. I, uh, Looking at this, it's got an M105 between each of the start codes. Mm-hmm. I bet the 140 sets tells the machine go to, in my case, 60 degrees Celsius. Okay. And then the M105 is the action to actually go there. And then the 190 is, okay, now that it's there, go to the next step. Okay. That's one Another of the few one cases. Was- one of the few places that I would expect co- or uh, comments and Kira doesn't do it. Huh. It is a little weird. Okay. Do you guys ever do the PID auto tuning in Merlin? Um, I have not. Actually, there's a lot of the, the Merlin side that I have not done. So PID, what's that stand for? Okay. So that, that's the, the part. So it uses a PID controller to control the, the temperature. So it doesn't, the thermostat inside doesn't operate like when it gets above 205, shut off. And if it's below 205, turn on. It doesn't operate like that. 
because it, there's a delay in when it when you turn the heat on and when you shut it off compared to the temperature reading. So PID mm-hmm. kind of controls for that, but it has to be tuned, you know. Okay. And it's PID itself, the way it works mathematically, is complicated, and I don't really understand it. That's Probably why it's a bunch really great. <laughs> That's why it's really great to have an auto tune option. But I notice on my printer with Merlin 2.0, I can't tell it through the menus to retune the head. You know, if I use a slightly larger hot end, it's got more mass to it. That's going to affect how it gets up to temperature and mm-hmm. how to sustain its temperature. So retuning the head in situations like that really matters. Or if you decide to run like without a, um, a thermal sock over it or, a, um, uh, you know, uh, what are they called? The silicone socks that will really change it as well. And so tuning it, um, doing an auto tune will help it get up to that temperature and stabilize much quicker. The only trouble okay. is, is at least on my Marlin two, you, the only way you can do it is by injecting that code. You hook it up to the computer as a serial port. And then just when it's a serial port, it's just everything you push to it is going straight to the, um, the G code interpreter on Merlin. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if you run the M303, it will start the auto tune and then it will do it. And then it will give you the numbers that seem to work best for whatever conditions you currently have. And then you use another code to set it at that, you know, in the firmware at that particular um, settings. And then you got to use that wonderful M500 to store the settings on the board. And it's just, there's a, there was actually kind of a, a lot to it, but that was one of my first things I learned about the G code interpreter on our printers and how dumb our printers really are by just, it's a serial port and you can just type G code right to it. And it just Mm -hmm. does its thing. And when you're, when you're printing a file, it's doing the exact same thing. It's just reading that text file and it's just going straight to the interpreter and the interpreter is just doing what it's told, you know, honestly, it's doing it faster than most, most humans can type, but yeah. Oh, by far. You definitely don't want to type enough code to print your own thing. <laughs> Can you imagine sitting there doing all the code by hand to print something out? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> I keep hearing about shops that uh, some of these podcasters have gone to for their business. And there's operators that do all the code by hand. That that might make sense when you're doing CNC stuff. But I don't know. <laughs> I, would think that, I would think that for printers, that they're just they're maybe just make writing code for compilers or slicers or something. I don't know. I wouldn't think that they would be writing every line of code to print out. Hearing them talking about it, the impression I got is, yeah, they're doing G code by hand. Wow. That would be insane. I I I would would struggle to compile it and then just edit it later. Cause if you think it's going to take too long, just go through and, you know, find the lines that are erroneous, you know? Uh, I would struggle to see how they can do anything very complex. Yeah. Like like right. if they're doing very rudimentary shapes, triangles, squares, and that sort of thing. If you've got practice with it, then maybe. But I, I spent three weeks typing, and I got a code for a gasket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no what? kidding, right? <laughs> well, well um, too, they're probably a lot more adept with what the printer can do. Like you were talking about, yeah, there's G codes to be able to do like radius cuts and radius movements and things like that. 
that you don't really see our printers ever use those kind of movements. They're all straight lines only for, you know, that come from our slicers. But if you were doing it more by hand, you might be a little bit more aware of those extra functions that would be available to you. That would be interesting. That would be a difference that I can see being valuable, at least with a CNC or a mill. Yeah. And I say, if you're going to sit down and write G code for like the, the header and the footer of your file, you know, the, the start code and the end code, it makes sense to write some of that out by hand and to figure it out so you know mm-hmm. exactly what it's doing. But uh, Or if you got some kind of special code that you want the printer to do specifically, like uh, like we were trying to take our theme song and have a printer sing it for us mm-hmm. and creating that G code was kind of neat because I mean, I use like an interpreter to take a MIDI file of our, of our theme song and write some G code to it to be able to do it. But it didn't have any, like there was no homing to it or anything like that to start off with or whatever. So when Just you were building the file, specific tone, so. yeah, yeah. yeah, so when you're building that file, it was a little bit more, you know, sitting down with it and actually writing stuff out to make sure the head was in the correct position every start, every time you start the file and whatnot. But uh, uh, yeah, so if you're doing weird stuff like that with it, it makes sense to write it by hand. But if you're doing anything with printing an object, you know, there just use the darn slicer. You manipulate sliced code. Don't don't write your own. Yeah. Well, and there's things like uh, Cura parameterizes everything. Yeah. So when it's being written, it references a uh, parameter to say, okay, this is how far you move up. It's not actually thinking about this is how high it is yet or anything like that. It'll compute it, but it doesn't identify necessarily how high each layer is because yeah. that's already a parameter and it's just running its own code. Um, when you're handwriting all of this, you actually have to think about things like that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of like writing CNC code. Uh, I did that a little bit and, you know, there's one, one program I did that just, it was a, it it would grab a, a surface mill and bring it down and just go over the top of whatever I've got in the vice and, and then come back and go again over it a little bit slower to clean it up a little nicer. And um, that that thing took like 40 lines of code to do just that. But, you know, it was really easy for me to do. Yeah, that it, sounds like it was a pretty simple instruction for something like that. That would make sense to do something like that yourself for, for that. If you're so. surfacing something like that, I'm assuming that you're going to use something bigger than points... I don't even yeah, remember how a, big my nozzle is. It's like a three inch, 0.75 millimeters. Inch. Yeah, this was a three-inch five-flute face mill. You know, it's it it's it, it's bigger than your coffee cup. You know, <laughs> so, so it you really it can over it can work over somewhere it's already worked, and you don't lose a whole lot of the space when you're working with 0.75 millimeters for your nozzle. You, uh, if you're going to yeah. go over somewhere you've already been, you need to make sure you can afford that space. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and that's another thing is, you know, 3D printers are dealing with such a smaller scale versus mm-hmm. CNCs are, you know, so that, yeah, there's going to be a lot more code because there's a lot more stuff to, it's, well, it's and- de- dealing with. 
Well, it's also the difference between additive manufacturing versus subtractive manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah, it takes less information to remove something than it does to make something. Yeah. Well, you don't have to worry about the inside structure as much, at least not as the machine operator. You know, somebody worries about it, just not the person that's operating the thing. <laughs> right. Well, okay. So on that point, one of the things that these podcasters go bring up periodically is the inside structure, the inside surface. Say you're working on, say, a jet engine that is printed in place. I, I don't think they actually do anything in that complex yet. But if you were, you would want the inside of the chamber for the rotor to be perfectly smooth. Mm-hmm. And you would need to know that it was perfectly smooth. And if you're designing it with a complex geometry that you can't see without a scope or something like that, you can't be certain because you didn't look at everything that it is correct. And any deformity could cause problems. But if that would not fly, if you can't, if you cannot verify it, it would that that plane engine would never make it to a plane. Right. Um, now I, I say that, but the inside chamber of a jet engine is fairly rudimentary. It's the workings of the jet itself that are complex, right? So, um, but as an example, it illustrates pretty well the problem with 3D printing of that component is it can be as complex if you, as you want. If you can't confirm that it meets spec, it can't be used. Is there anything else? Not that Did I can think about. There's a lot to go ourselves. into Jeep code, but it's uh, really it's also you, just is, to, you just want to know, if, you know, uh, maybe a, a dozen a dozen codes to insert into stuff after you've sliced it. I think is what. Or at the very least, how to use Google. Yep, that, that's how software engineers do it. They don't necessarily know everything. They just know what they're trying to achieve, and they know how to search for the answer. So. Yeah, that's how I. That's how I. Um, but that's how I did mine when I had to do a couple posit heights. Kira had it, but Kira didn't do it. So <laughs> I opened the G code and <laughs> I, I, I've done that a, a few times myself or trying to figure something out and only want a couple of layers. And you can set your item down below the build plate for uh, Kira and it'll only print everything above it. Yeah. It's really but, nice for testing out. But if you want to do just a cross section of a certain spot, you need to have it stop at that certain height too. So what I've done is I've recessed it in the build plate and then I've gone in and just removed everything after like the fourth line or fourth okay. layer. It's a good idea. Just, just to get a good cross section of what it's printing to make sure that that does what it's supposed to. And then I go back and reprint the whole part. So That is good. Just make sure you always add a, uh, a cool-down temperature for your head because when it runs out of code, it just yeah. stops. And if it's maintaining a temperature, it's going to keep on maintaining that temperature. Yeah, That's one of the me. things I wish that Merlin, at least our, our printers, would do is make sure that the code was finalized or you know that mm-hmm. it had stored all the way to the end. There have been way too many times where I've been saving a large file. Now, first off, these files are are big text files, but the files themselves are small in size, you know, a couple, 
I mean, it's rare that you get above like 50 meg files, right? Sure. And so I've been using older, smaller SD cards on my printer because they're reliable. But it, it started causing me problems of the card being written too slowly. And so I'll go and I'll slice the file and then I'll pop that SD card out without ejecting it like you're supposed to and then run down and throw it in the printer. And then just like three quarters through the print, the printer just stops. And you sit there and you debug for a little while. What the hell's going on? Until you go and you look at the G-code itself and it just did not save all the way. Mm. <laughs> you know, you only got three quarters of the file written. So mm. it would be nice if the printer would, would read to the end, you know, and, and if there was some kind of like, uh, you know, uh, close tag on the end of the file, like a body tag or something, you know, an HTML <laughs> that you could check for to know that you've, re you've reached the end of the file. And that way, you know the file is is complete. And that's kind of the problem with techies, right? We we know that something is hot swappable, so it shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> USB is was designed to be hot swappable, right? That was the biggest <laughs> feature back in '95 when it was invented. So, yeah. um, the idea that you have to wait for something to finish before you remove it is kind of foreign to us. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Unfortunately. Gary used to always give me the option to eject the media after you saved it. And I noticed in my latest versions here that after you save it, it doesn't give you the option to eject media anymore. Um, it does for me. Now, does it? are you using 4.2 or... I, I'm not the biggest fan of their process kind of overall because... If you're doing the save as process, mm -hmm. um, you have to manually tell it to go in. And if you accidentally don't do save as, then it'll save as the file name that you opened it as mm -hmm. Yep. at the last place that it can access. Yeah. And if the drive wasn't inserted at just the right time, it won't recognize the drive. Like if it was already in there when you opened up the Cura. Yeah. So... Um, when you do just the regular save, it'll give you the option to eject. But if you do the process where you change the name and look at where it's being saved and all that, it won't. That's probably what I'm experiencing. Because I did start using save as instead of the, the basic save to media option. So that makes sense. Okay. And I wish it was configurable to always do one or the other instead of switching in the middle just before you click the button. Yeah. Because that, that gets frustrating. Yeah, no Just kidding. because it's not what you expected, right? Yeah. But, yeah, it is what it is. And this is one of the better slicers out there. So <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you, you absorb the little frustrations because it is so much better in so many other ways. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, we ready to call it? I, I think, think so. so. Cool. Sure. All right. We'd like to thank everyone for listening. And if you liked this episode, please give us all the stars. We would especially like to thank you for listening to the end as we jabbered about everything but printing for the last few minutes. <laughs> um, if you have any feedback or if you have any content requests, please let us know at panelists at amateur3dpod.com or you can reach us at individually at Franklin, Kevin, Andy, or Chris at amateur3dpod.com. And you can also find us in our Facebook group, Amateur 3D Pod. And lastly, 
we'd like to thank Kevin Buckner for writing our theme music. And until next time, we're going offline. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> da, da, da.